I want to speak on and explore the theme of uh, equanimity this evening. So first a poem written for this evening. (laughs) Perhaps an evolving March tradition, (laughs) we will see. The title of the poem is Equanimity. (laughs) Near the time of the spring equinox, the balance between two suns standing still, equal nights, equal days. Remain in equanimity, says Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. Not so easy, though, for the mind to stand still. It jumps around. It shoots arrows, first and second. (laughs) It seeks the strange refuge of reactive movement towards what it wants and away from what it doesn't want. So we train in seeing the jumping, the shooting, the reacting, Mindfulness of jumping does not jump. (laughs) Mindfulness of shooting does not shoot. Mindfulness of reacting does not react. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Equanimity starts with the one moment of awareness and ends with awareness of the one and the many moments. Let me always start again and remain at least a while in equanimity with the easy and the hard and the in-between, with my body present, equanimity as more than a good idea, with my caring heart not left aside by my would-be equanimity, with my action not left behind and caught in indifference, by my would-be equanimity, still caught clinging to the peace or stillness or understanding of equanimity. With my response to the suffering of our world not left behind by my would-be equanimity, still caught in complacency or distance or privilege while thinking of equanimity, balance, yet no one, no part, of my life left behind. Between the two suns standing still, all my days are in balance. So this quality of equanimity is a very powerful, in some ways complex, aspect of our practice. It has integrated the qualities of wisdom, of the caring heart, of responsiveness. And it's really the uh, signpost actually, or the, the um, part of the nature of some of the, the beings that we find uh, most beloved. There's this equanimity all of those qualities present 
So I was thinking, for example, of, a, of the speech that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the night before he was killed. Many of you know this speech, the one in Memphis. It's sometimes called the been to the mountaintop speech. And it expresses uh, you know, almost an uh, uncanny equanimity. This is what he said. I got into Memphis and some began to talk about the threats that were out. <clears throat> what would happen to me from some of our, some of our sick white brothers? <clears throat> well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. It doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountaintop. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And I'll, I'll come back to, I'll come back to Dr. King. That's, you can feel, you know, maybe as you were listening to my reading, you could hear his voice. This is the, the Buddha on equanimity from the Dhammapada. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires, touched by happiness and then by suffering. The sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. So this uh, quality of equanimity involving aspects of balance, of wisdom, of compassion, of responsiveness, no matter what's happening, is a very uh, powerful quality and in the Buddhist tradition, it's a very, um, very central aspect of our practice. And it's often taken as very close to the quality of awakening, the quality of equanimity. There are a few terms. The main one that we use is upekka. Many of you live in Upeka. <laughs> and perhaps you were there for a reason. <laughs> Don't know. Um, the, the term Upeka is the main one we use. It's a term that can point to equanimity in our mindfulness practice, in our wisdom practice, in the Brahma Vihara practice. And it literally means to look over with with the suggestion that one is seeing without being caught in a way.
And in the, uh, you know, the colloquial tradition or the, you know, the everyday tradition of using the word in India at the time of the Buddha, it had connotations of seeing with patience. So all of these connotations are there in the term patience, balance, clear seeing. And there's also uh, another term that's sometimes used that we translate as equanimity, tatrama uh, majataha which is, means to stand in the middle of all this, basically suggesting to, to be in the middle of everything and be centered and balanced. And it's interesting, the, you know, the English term we use, again, it's going to have somewhat different connotations. Um, equanimity as an English word comes from uh, Latin words meaning equal mind. It's, it's actually the word that the, the ancient word uh, anima or animas that is uh, translated sometimes as soul. So it means an, an equal, equal quality of mind, an equal mind towards what's happening. And it's tricky as a word because it often in English can suggest that it's a little bit of a, a dry way of staying balanced. And it, and part of what we'll explore is the way it actually is a deeply heartfelt quality. So in the teachings of the Buddha, equanimity is typically mentioned last. And it's mentioned in a lot of the the lists, as many of you know, it's the last of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of the Brahma-vihara. It's the last of the paramis, or the uh, core virtues. It's the last of the uh, concentrated states called the jhanas, in terms of the, uh, the, form, the jhanas of form. And it's also in, in some of the sequences uh, concerning awakening, it's taken to be a quality which stabilizes just before awakening. This is more in the... Um, later traditions, like the uh, text called the Vasudhimaga, Path of Purification. And it's very interesting, as a Brahma-vihara, in the Tibetan tradition, equanimity is practiced first before metta, so that one actually gets one's... Uh, uh, the wisdom is there from the beginning. And it's an interesting way to practice. I, I Several years ago, uh, I did a month of the Brahmi Vihar, and I did it that way. I started with two days of equanimity, and then a week of metta, a week of compassion, a week of uh, mudita, and then five days of equanimity. It worked very well. And we'll, we'll come to equanimity in a little while. Um, so it's, the, its essence is the ability to be with whatever's happening without reactivity with clear seeing and the kind heart. Sometimes uh, a very nice way of talking about equanimity that's often used is that equanimity is like a wise grandmother who's basically seen everything. <laughs> she has seen everything. And, and, and yet she's right there and she's caring. She's seen everything, she knows everything, nothing's going to phase her, and yet she's responsive, right? It's not like she's seen everything and she's checked out. 
So we'll, we'll come to that very crucial part. And just a, like a personal note, uh, um, I've, I've really kind of fallen in love with equanimity. And, you know, from looking at it uh, over, over a number of years, and it's, it's um, I've been particularly interested in how people who are interested in social change manifested equanimity in the midst of action. And in exploring it, uh, a lot of things keep opening up. That's part of what I love, you know. I'll get to this later, but, you know, traditionally there's just one near enemy for the Brahma-vihara, and like, in exploring them, I found like 10, 10 more near enemies. You know, like, you know, resignation can look like equanimity, or complacency can look like equanimity, and so forth. Even numbness can look like equanimity, and so forth. So I'll get to that in a bit. But, and I think another reason why I love it is that I think my... Uh, my father, Simon, uh, who died in 2005, I think also manifested equanimity to a large extent, you know, with, you know, not perfectly developed, but there was a lot of balance. And he had seen um, a lot of suffering in his life, both personal and what he witnessed. He was, uh, uh, he enlisted in the uh, army during World War II when he was 18. And he was in what was then called the Army Air Force. He had a lot of friends die. You know, he saw a lot of death. And uh, we used to sometimes go to meditation retreats for veterans, you know, which was very, uh, very moving. Um, he was able to come out of uh, the war and get on the GI Bill, and he went to college. He couldn't go to medical school, which he wanted to do, because there actually were quotas against people of Jewish background at that time. That actually lasted up to the early 1960s. And he was, he could not um, get into medical school for that reason. There were, there were these quotas, even though he had the right uh, background and so forth. And he also lived with um, um, psoriasis, you know, which was all over his body. And yet he wasn't self-conscious. He would go to a swimming pool and, you know, he would just be himself, basically. So there was a lot of equanimity there. Um, And then there were other things. He had... um, he started going blind when he was in his, I don't know, in his uh, late 40s. Probably from poorly supervised government experiments. We don't know for sure. You know, when he was uh, working with chemicals. And he, you know, he had to stop driving and he was legally blind the last many decades of his life. And then he also developed cancer when he was in his 50s and was given, I think, what a, like a two-year or four-year, di- you know, prognosis, and he, he lived for 27 years. And there was, um, you know, there was a quality of um, balance, you know. I mean, again, I'm not saying everything was aligned there, but there was balance and there was um, um, not complaining, you know. 
and being present and, you know, particularly with his lack of vision, I, my sense was that his heart got bigger, you know. So there's a bench which we have in the lower courtyard in the administrative place where I, I, I go to sit most days, uh, part of the time. And on the bench we have a, like a little plaque which were some of his words, which was that, you know, when, when, when I... Um, he eventually got a, a doctorate in chemistry and then when I myself got a doctorate, he passed on this like name plaque that sat, sits on a desk to me. And on the bottom of it he wrote, uh, I pass this on to you, it has always symbolized my lifelong pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. And so we have that on the bench. And um, so there was a lot of equanimity, so I learned. And I, he, you know, he faced things that I've never faced. You know, so that's part of the background for this. So I want to talk about a few of the qualities of equanimity and r- relate it to our practice directly. You know, and uh, you know, along the way, suggest some ways to practice to develop more equanimity. One of the qualities that's most pronounced is this sense of balance, that through our practice, we can become more balanced with whatever arises, you know? And to some extent, we just have to go through everything. That's not what I thought when I started meditation. I I thought that it was just onwards and upwards. Anyone thought that initially, you know? (laughs) onwards and upwards, but you know, maybe it's onwards and upwards, but it's not linear. (laughs) Maybe it's spiral or some other formation. And um, I did not expect to hang out with some of the difficult states that I have hung out with. And that may be for you too. And you know, um, it's part of of it, you know. And it's, it's actually in a way we have to become acquainted with almost every part of the map, right? We get acquainted with the range of human experience, you know, with, with the beautiful as well as the difficult, with the, uh, the joy, the bliss, the, the wisdom, the clear seeing, the kind heart, the compassion, the bliss, and so forth. And then there's also the explorations of the difficult states, the fear, the sadness, the self-judgment, and so on. It's almost like we have to learn from going through that. You know, I, I was thinking there's a, there's a line from uh, Mark Twain which says, uh, it's about judgment. And he says, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> so in a way we, you know, this can give some framework, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really to take everything as learning, you know, and we don't learn to be balanced when fear comes by reading about it in the books, right? 
we learn how to become balanced with fear by being with fear and using our practice and having the support of the group and um, finding ways to be present more. And then something's learned, you know, that contributes amazingly the next time it happens, right? And then there's all the, and it's kind of simple. We, we, we learn how to be balanced with these different qualities in part by going out of balance, but having these teachings and these tools so that we come back or we notice it some who were only partly lost and then we were able to come back. A second quality of equanimity is a kind of evenness that can develop, that we have an evenness. This happens, that happens, and we maintain more of an even keel. And it's not that we're unemotional, but that we don't get sort of knocked off balance. We can, we can be with whatever's there, and it's a little bit like we you know, have this happen and there's, we, we maintain a certain perspective and a certain attitude, increasingly no matter what happens, you know, which is very freeing, meaning that we're less and less reactive. You know, we, we use that understanding that we know from Achan Samedo that's been mentioned here. We come increasingly to see, oh, this is happening. It's like this. Oh, back pain. Oh, reactivity. Oh, bliss. <laughs> you know, and in a way, we uh, we don't get so grasping with the highs or so pushing away of the lows. There's more of an evenness that develops. You know, uh, one of my favorite expressions of this uh, evenness comes in Japanese haiku. I think my favorite is this one from Basho. From Basho lived at the end of the what the uh, end of the 17th century in Japan. Very much beloved. This is uh, remember haikus are very short, so now is not a good time to think about something else. They're like <laughs> <laughs> they're like you know 17 syllables. So here here's here's this for me is an equanimity haiku. Okay. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. (laughs) Okay, that's it. (laughs) So you know that I'm bringing this up in the context of making a point about evenness. (laughs) So when I hear that, fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow, I don't hear reactivity. <laughs> I hear there's something, you know, very matter of fact, like Winnie was talking about, uh, you know, in terms of uh, knowing uh, mindfulness, right? That we have that matter of fact, fleas, oh yes, lice, oh yes, horse pissing, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are two haiku from Isa who lived about a century later. And he was, he was also writing quite a bit about fleas. <laughs> I haven't done the research to know the state of fleas <laughs> in where he lived, but 
these two haiku both have fleas in them. And they're, to me again, they're about evenness. And they're, okay, I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. A little less dramatic than the horse. But But still, it seems to be about evenness, just very matter-of-factly saying, okay, they're fleas. Enjoy yourself, fleas. He's not complaining about the fleas. And then the next one, um, he's about to go visit a, a beautiful part of Japan, a place called Matsushima. And he says, now you fleas, we shall go see Matsushima. (laughs) (laughs) Off we go. (laughs) So, maybe at the end of the retreat we'll have some invitation for haikus. (laughs) There's also a quality of... uh, unshakability that's there increasingly with equanimity. Again, it's part, it comes out of experience. This is really an encouragement to, it's really to frame everything as learning somehow. You know, we try to help you with that. How can I take everything as learning? You know, so it takes a certain amount of faith. I'll talk about that in a moment. But there's this unshakability that develops increasingly and mature equanimity has that uh, quality one of the ways it's expressed traditionally is through talking about unshakability in relationship to what are called the eight worldly whims or the eight worldly conditions, the lokadama. The, these are probably familiar to many of us. These are the qualities of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And and one of the ways that we can practice and develop equanimity is be on the lookout for these eight. Now, we've already looked quite a bit at pleasure and pain in terms of looking at uh, the second foundation of mindfulness and Vedana practice. But to really watch where does my mind, my heart, my body go with pleasure and pain? Where does it go with gain and loss? Where does it go with uh, some sense of self-image? You know, where does it go in, in relation to praise and blame? You know, those are some of the largest ones for many of us. You know, even here, that might be, that need might be there. You might be, you might be asking yourself, you know, um, about how you're doing. And you may, you may, we may be judging ourselves. It's very common to have that quality of self-judgment in our practice, you know, and we can work with that. We can work with that. Uh, a lot of this is really noticing the stories we tell. You know, the noticing the stories we tell when things aren't going well or when things are going well. <clears throat> and really tracking those. And there's... <laughs> looks like some people are being asked to practice equanimity <laughs> with flying creatures. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> So we practice. We practice with all of these challenging circumstances. (laughs) One of my favorite stories is one I heard from Larry Rosenberg like many, many years ago. And this was of when, many of you probably know Larry, he's a 
teacher, founder of the uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And Larry uh, was actually one of my early mentors and, you know, a, a dear friend. And um, he used to practice in the Zen tradition. And one uh, Christmas time, he was scheduled to teach a retreat for the Cambridge Zen Center. And uh, it was right after Christmas. And it turned out that uh, no one signed up for the retreat. And so he went to his teacher and he said, no one signed up. I guess we canceled the retreat. His teacher was uh, Sun Sanim, a Korean Zen teacher. I guess we canceled the retreat and the teacher said no. (laughs) 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 I want you to uh, teach the whole retreat. I want you to go through the whole schedule. (laughs) And I also want you to give... uh, Dharma talks every evening. (laughs) And indeed, no one showed up. But Larry was there. He said, uh, for the first day or so, he felt quite foolish. (laughs) But at a certain point, something sunk in. And he actually learned that it was actually very beautiful to do what he was doing. That it was about dedication. It was also about learning that, you know, really the heart of equanimity is this unshakability that we increasingly carry within. And that after that, he said, he was way less concerned about what people said about retreats, you know, or about numbers, you know, because even in the teaching world, we might say, oh, how was the retreat? Yeah, it was full, 90 people, Spirit Rock. Ah, pretty good. You know, how was the retreat? Yeah, well, we were drastically un- under-enrolled. Ah, not so good. <laughs> right, and there can be all this, you know, comparing mind goes on occasionally for teachers as well. <laughs> and sometimes more than occasionally. And, and Larry said that was something got learned there about that quality of unshakability. This is from the Buddha. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So in our practice, we want to really see what takes us away from that unshakability. We want to particularly look at the stories we tell ourselves, the narratives, the ways that we get hooked in some interpretations. We want to really track interpretations of our practice, about what's happening now. Just over and over again, we track those you know, and become familiar and watch how they may be taking us out of that equanimity. That really leads me to a fourth quality of equanimity, which is the quality we might call of understanding or wisdom. Ultimately, equanimity is deeply rooted in understanding of impermanence, of the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom, the roots of them both, 
the dynamics of suffering, the dynamics of freeing, so that's the Four Noble Truths. Knowing the nature of the arising of self, the nature of anatta or not-self. These are the wisdom qualities and equanimity among the Brahma-vihara especially carries the wisdom dimension. It may be seeing the causes and conditions evident in a situation. I know for myself, one of a really key learning experience came when I um, was uh, working in an institution and, and I had someone who was a higher up who uh, basically could say yay or nay for some of my projects. And he was um, actually quite formally my difficult person for some period of time. And I may have chosen someone too difficult because he was at the upper end of the, of the scale. He was like what sometimes is called my nem- one's nemesis, right? <laughs> in other words, I would come up with a great plan and he would throw, as it were, cold water on it. And, um, and I would become reactive with him, he would become reactive with me. One of those good old-fashioned stuck relationships, <laughs> you know? And then one morning, I had a, you know, another good project and I heard him do things which I interpret, interpreted as squashing it and I noticed my mind starting and for some reason that morning I started to look at all the causes and conditions in his psychology, in my psychology, our histories, the nature of the institution, and I saw we were doing the same dance or the same, going through the same drama that we've done a number of times. And there was a way of seeing the causes and conditions that let me not get so stuck. I could see what was happening. And equanimity often has that. I did um, a book several years ago about connecting inner work with social service and social change. I interviewed a lot of what we might call spiritually based activists. And we could see that sort of uh, sense of understanding there. Often it took, it was there in having a very long view of things. I remember uh, interviewing Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka, who set up the uh, uh, network of uh, village based. Uh, organizations. Collectively it was called Sarvodaya, which came out of Gandhi, in the sense of uh, serving, gift of service. And I I believe that's the translation. And he uh, was very instrumental in helping to end the civil war in Sri Lanka. He developed a 500-year plan for ending the Civil War because he said it took 500 years for for the conditions to develop that led to it with colonialism and so forth, you know, and lack of uh, understanding between the different ethnic groups and so forth. And he had a 500-year plan, you know, and it it was very well organized and it was saying, we have to understand the conditions and equanimity has that sense of understanding, understanding the long view Joanna Macy says this. She takes it uh, uh, more than 500 years. She says, 
If we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We are four and a half billion years old. And in terms of the origins of life, in terms of the origins of life in 15 billion years old, in terms of the Big Bang, every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now did not begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. This is a version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story. This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're part of the story. So the long view, the sense of the long haul. There's also a sense of faith that can be very strong and that I think is increasingly there as we practice. You know, part of what happens just from going through this experience or that experience is we have a growing confidence. And for many people, a better word for faith is confidence. You know, there's a confidence in the nature of the path, the nature of the practice, in our own capabilities increasingly to, to develop, to learn, you know. And this, this sometimes develops slowly and definitely not always directly. There can be something, there can be increasingly something deep, some deep knowing. Many of you probably have felt that a lot. You know, maybe you felt that to know to come on retreat. Some knowing, this is the next step. And that quality of knowing turns into confidence, turns into a quality, a quality of faith. And it sometimes comes out of difficult experiences. You know, sometimes we go through something. There was a very powerful experience that I, I wanted to relate that relates to what my initial reading from, from Dr. King. When he was actually still very young and early in his work in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, he went through an experience which uh, actually uh, uh, Cornell West, the writer and activist, speaks about as Dr. King's mountaintop experience. He thinks he was actually referring to this when in that last speech. And this was 1955, so it was just at the beginning. And he was home late at night. It was midnight or so. He had a young daughter and his wife were asleep. And he got a telephone call. They didn't have answering machines then. And he answered it. And someone called him a number of expletives and said, said to him, um, we're tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in, in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And he said that at that moment, he went to the uh, kitchen table and he poured a cup of coffee and he sat around it and he actually felt very weak. He said he was ready to give up. You know, there had been a lot of stress and he was sort of pushed to the edge. And he sat there thinking about his wife, his child, that they might be killed, that they might die from what he was doing. And he 
he said, this, these are his own words, I got to the point where I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on mama now. You've got to call on that something and that person that your daddy used to tell you about, the power that can make a way out of no way. He said, this is a later speech, I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed to me at the moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and I will be with you even to the end of the world. I heard the voice, he said, of Jesus saying, still to fight on, he promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone, no, never alone. And then he said, almost at once my fears began to, began to go, my uncertainty disappeared. And in actuality, a few days later, his house was bombed. And luckily, uh, no one was hurt. And there was a press conference, and people were amazed by the quality of equanimity. And he later said it was that, was that experience which had, uh, was there with him at that moment. So there are, different, there are different experiences that build that confidence, you know. But I think it can be helpful to reflect what builds one's own confidence. Where do I feel that um, quality of faith? And I'll mention two other qualities more briefly. One of them is that mature equanimity has the quality of joy, of metta, of warmth. Again, this we can get confused by the word because it sounds equanimity can sound cold. And there there's a there's a way in which the the mature equanimity has the quality of warmth and kindness. And there's also a quality of responsiveness. Again, equanimity isn't passive. And I want, I want to go into those in a little more depth by talking about uh, two challenges related to those qualities. These are the really challenges of equanimity practice. I mean, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, it's challenging to be non-reactive, right, with both good and bad things happening. You know, equanimity is a very beautiful development of our, of our being. Traditionally, in the context of the Brahmavihara, the near enemy, or what uh, Larry Yang calls the near opposite of, uh, or what Heather calls the near miss of uh, the Brahmavihara, the near enemy or opposite, near opposite or near miss of equanimity is indifference. And so we want to look out for that in our practice. It's really when we have aspects of that clear seeing 
but there's a lack of warmth. There's maybe a lack of connection with the heart. And then also a lack of responsiveness. Maybe responsiveness to the world or to others. And I think it really relates to a larger issue with our practice that it can be challenging for us sometimes to connect our wisdom practice with the heart practice. You know, for a lot of different reasons. You know, one of them is, is that I think in, in the West, there have been several thousand years of cultural conditioning to split them off, which are there in the culture. And it's quite strong. You know, maybe the epitome of that cutoff is the model you know, the model of a cold clinical scientist who has to get rid of the heart in order to do the work of gaining knowledge. You know, sort of a white-coated clinician who's um, disconnected. And of course, sometimes that can be valuable just to really have that cultivation of a of clear view. But it's it can be very much there in our culture, in our background, some kind of split between them, you know, which is, you know, can be very connected with gender, with other dimensions. And it also can be an issue in Buddhist practice that we may be sometimes not so clear how, for example, our mindfulness and wisdom practice connects with metta or connects with the Brahma Vihara. You know, they seem to be used different techniques and they seem very different in certain ways. And this has come up, this has come up with the question earlier in the hall about sort of the relative and the absolute or the, you know, where, where do we find the person or identity when we bring in looking at um, not self. You know, so it can be confusing here with metta practice, it seems very personal. We're cultivating qualities for ourselves, for others. And then the language we sometimes get from wisdom seems to be impersonal, right? Empty phenomena rolling on, the aggregates just happening, right? How do those go together? Anyone have any confusion along the way, the last weeks or years? You know, or, you know, Metta and the heart practices seem to be about the relative and it's not really the deeper teachings or about the absolute, right? How do they go together? You know, or um, metta seems to use words and as we get deeper in our mindfulness and wisdom practice, it seems we go beyond words and concepts. How do they come together? Metta wishes for particular things to happen. Equanimity often will, in some ways, relativize that. Like the, I often think that with metta, I may say, may you be happy. With my equanimity phrase is no matter what you wish for, things are as they are. It's kind of like, you can wish for happiness, kid, but things are as they are. Right? Okay, I don't want to engender too much confusion this late in the talk. (laughs) But there's a tension there, right? There's a tension that we may feel at times. 
And I think equanimity is very much healing this. And it's not so much that we work it out conceptually, but we have the practice of the heart and the practice of wisdom, and they mingle. They come together. And there's a way in which they increasingly integrate together. You know, that they increasingly connect. And in many traditions, including many of the Buddhist traditions, that invocation that the highest teaching is about the unity of wisdom and compassion, or that the the Dharma is like a bird with two wings and their wisdom and compassion. And they're together and they, it's sometimes, conceptually it's sometimes hard to make sense of it, but that's always there. And that's always the connection. There was a poem that for me expresses this beautifully by Gary Snyder, um, right after the destruction by the Taliban of those large Buddhas in Afghanistan in in 2001. It was right before 9-11, I think in the spring of 2001. And these large Buddhas were destroyed and a lot of people were very saddened about that. And someone wrote to him and said, why are you sad? Aren't you a Buddhist? What about impermanence? And he wrote a kind of a poem in response. This is what he said. Ah, yes, impermanence. (laughs) But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. And he he quotes uh, another one of the haiku of Isa in which Isa refers to this world being like a dewdrop world, which is a reference to the Diamond Sutra, Mahayana text, which compares our life, it has lines that go like this, this dewdrop world, or I'm sorry, like a tiny drop of dew, or a bubble floating on a stream, like a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, or a flickering lamp, an illusion, a phantom, or a dream, so is all conditioned existence to be seen. And so Snyder is basically saying, yes, and. And this is, this is what he said. The haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And he says then, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. This is from Nyanaponikatara, a great writer on the Brahma Vihara. He talks about the mingling of these four. And I talked about this in the uh, teaching on Mudita yesterday, that in actuality, one of, the, one of the most beautiful aspects of the teaching is that all four of these qualities to be mature need to come together and integrate aspects of the other. If not, they will run danger of going into their near opposites or near enemies. And so he says, equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love or compassion or sympathetic joy or that it leaves them behind. Far from that, equanimity includes and permeates them fully, just as they fully pervade perfect equanimity. Metta imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. 
compassion or karuna guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test. Mudita, her sympathetic joy, gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the smile in the face of the Buddha. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three. It gives to metta an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. It gives compassion an uneven, unwavering courage and fearlessness. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, devotion to the work of compassion. And then briefly, there's also that sense that equanimity as indifference can be cut off from action, from responsiveness, it can become passive. And again, the teaching I think is that that equanimity has this deep responsiveness, this deep willingness to act, to keep responding to the world, not to use the equanimity as a reason to be separate, to be distant, to be again caught in uh, complacency or resignation or maybe in privilege, you know. I live distant from suffering. I have my spiritual practice. I'm so equanimous. Could be, right? It's a danger. So the poem to close again. Near the time of the spring equinox, the balance between two suns standing still, equal nights, equal days, remain in equanimity, says Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. Not so easy though for the mind to stand still. It jumps around, it shoots arrows. It seeks the strange refuge of reactive movement towards what it wants and away from what it doesn't want. So we train in seeing the jumping, the shooting, the reacting. Mindfulness of jumping does not jump. Mindfulness of shooting does not shoot. Mindfulness of reacting does not react. Isn't that interesting? Equanimity starts with the one moment of awareness and ends with awareness of the one in many moments. Let me, let me start always again and remain at least a while in equanimity with the easy and the hard and the in-between, with my body present, equanimity is more than a good idea, with my caring heart not left behind by my would-be equanimity, with my action not left behind, still caught in indifference by my would-be equanimity, still caught clinging to the peace, stillness, or understanding of equanimity, with my response to the suffering of our world not left behind by my would-be equanimity, still caught in complacency or distance or privilege while thinking of equanimity. Balance, yet no one, no part of my life left behind. 
between the two suns standing still, all of my days are in balance. So thank you for your wonderful listening, and I hope that uh, I hope that my um, love of equanimity is contagious. <laughs> and may our uh, equanimity develop well in these next in this next period of time.